0: Hi, I'm Bobby, and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. So, the Oscars were last Sunday, and by all accounts, I'd say it was pretty pretty tame. Like not not much went went on. Not much was happening. It was kind of a boring show, one one could say. Obviously I'm joking. It was a memorable ceremony to say the least. Um you don't need to hear what happened for me because it's been literally everywhere. I simply have not been able to escape it since it happened. So like I said, we all know what happened. But as your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture and as a a lover and admirer of a film and kind of what the Oscar should be, which is a celebration of film, I want to take a few moments before we hop into today's topic to highlight some really good moments that happened from that night that I think have kind of gotten lost in all the commotion of the bigger moments from the show. Starting with Ariana DeBose taking home the first award of the night, which was Best Supporting Actress for her role as Anita in West Side Story. Uh, Fun fact, she is the first openly queer woman of color to receive this honor. And her speech was absolutely incredible. Megan Thee Stallion and Beyonce looked stunning. Beautiful, amazing, radiant. Uh, Questlove gave a beautiful speech for his film, Summer of Love, that won Best Documentary Feature. Jessica Chastain took home her first Best Actress Award for The Eyes of Tammy Faye. And as a part of my, like, Post Oscars homework, I watched The Eyes of Tammy Faye and it was very, very good. Chastain's performance in it is absolutely phenomenal Um, and I highly recommend checking it out. You can watch it on HBO Max. Uh, Composer Hans Zimmer took home his second Academy Award for Best Original Score for Dune. And if you're wondering how long it's been since his first award, he won his first award all the way back in 1994 for the lion king so it has been quite a bit since han zimmer has uh won best original score very deserved the dune score is is really really good um personally do i think he should have won in 1998 for the prince of egypt yes i do but no one was asking me so we're moving on um which leads me to one of the like most heartwarming parts of the show i think um which was anytime coda won anything if you don't know coda is an apple tv uh film that was nominated for best supporting actor for troy kotzer best original screenplay or best adapted screenplay i can't remember um and best picture and it took home all three awards um but one of the moments that kind of sticks out is Troy Kotzer winning best Supporting actor. Uh, the whole segment of that sh- of the show when he accepted the award was uh, really amazing because it started with last year's best Supporting actress winner, Yagen Yoon um kind of presenting the award and she signed her congratulations to Kotzer before he won that and when he was like going up to accept his award. The one thing that I noticed was there was a lot of silence in the room, and it wasn't because people weren't happy for him winning, because the performance is really great, but everyone, instead of clapping, was signing applause, which obviously would not produce a sound, which I thought was just really, like, it was a really heartwarming moment in the midst of a absolutely insane show. So, Troy Kotzer is now the first deaf man and second deaf person to win an Oscar for acting. A fun fact, the first person to win an Oscar, uh, the first deaf person to win an Oscar for acting is his Coda co-star Marley Matling, who won all the way back in 1987 for Children of a Lesser God. And like I said before, Coda basically uh, won everything that it was nominated for, including Best Picture, making it the first film from a streamer and if you don't know, a streamer is an Apple TV, a Disney Plus, Netflix, things like that to win Best Picture. And I think it is absolutely worthy of getting that honor for sure. Um, so those are some highlights from the show, I think, that are that have kind of gotten lost in the sauce. But the whole the bigger moment of the show that we all know about between Will Smith and Chris Rock kind of reminded me of just how messy Hollywood is. Can be, right? There's no business like show business, and show business is a wreck. There's probably no messier period for Hollywood than that of the Golden Age of Hollywood. If you think what's going on now is insane, back then, nuts. Absolutely nuts. So this week, we are hopping in our time machine and taking a walk through time all the way back to the messy time period that is known as the Golden Age of Hollywood. We've got a few episodes under our belt here at the Hi, I'm Bobby podcast. And guys, I got to tell you that it wasn't simpler to start a podcast than with Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain it's free, there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast straight from your phone or your computer. Anchor will literally distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and it's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. If this sounds amazing to you, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I am so excited and I hope you guys will make a podcast today. Old Hollywood helped to build the foundation that the current film industry rests on, and it built the glitter-ridden image that many have of Hollywood. But all that glitters is not gold. There are many cogs in this chaotic machine, so I would like to start with what being a star was like during this time. Obviously, we have big stars like your Marilyn Monroe's, your Rock Hudson's, you know, like all these great names. Um, but it was objectively horrible to be an actor <laughs> around this time. So let's get into it. So in the early 1910s, actors were really not seen as anything more than accessories to a film, uh, to the point where they weren't even credited in the films. There was a definitely a major, like kind of theatrical approach borrowing from the stage, obviously that actors were vehicles to perform the words written for them, the words and actions written for them. But with the advent of film and in kind of the way that you can see something multiple times, audiences began to kind of notice actors in multiple films. But obviously they did not know their names because they weren't credited. So they began to give these stars nicknames. So Florence Lawrence was known as the Biograph Girl and Mary Pickford was known as Little Mary. These are nicknames that the audience would have to give them that kind of pinged to studios that, hey, we can do something with this. We can make this into something. So essentially, like I said, studios began to take notice and they essentially created the star system. So what is the star system? The star system created stars from the ground up. Studios crafted perfect images of their actors, even if that didn't match who that actor was in real life. They did everything for these actors. They got them plastic surgery if necessary. They changed their names if necessary. They gave them personality traits. And I did a video on this a couple of, probably a couple of weeks ago at this point. And a lot of people were bringing up, so like K-pop. And if you're familiar with the kind of back end mechanics of the K-pop industry... That. It's pretty much that. So what I mean by that, like sometimes actors were given personas that didn't match who they were in real life. A major example of this is Rock Hudson. So if you don't know, Rock Hudson was kind of uh, given this every man, uh, ladies man kind of look. Like he was the image of the perfect man who any woman would just fall head over heels for. Like, Always very straight lace, like hair perfectly coiffed, usually in like a suit. And if he wasn't in a suit, he was in some flannel. So that lets you know that he's a man that can take care of things in the house. It's very idealistic. However, comma, Rock Hudson's real name was Roy Fitzgerald. And he was a gay man. He didn't like women. So obviously that that image kind of, you know, there's a little bit of friction there. But his studio did not care about the image or persona of Roy Fitzgerald. They only cared about the image and persona that they created for him named Rock Hudson. And it was up to Roy Fitzgerald to maintain that. And so a lot of stars went through very similar things. There are probably a lot of unknown stories and things like that that we'll never know about. Because these stars were given this one story that they had to follow for... The majority of their career in a lot of cases. So, within the star system, stars were kind of bound to a studio for the majority of their career. And it must be noted that the star system is kind of a bigger part of the studio system that operated from the 20s to the 60s, but we'll get into that a little bit later. So like I said, they were bound to a studio for the majority of their career and they were seen as salaried employees earning about $75 to $250 a week. Now, again, you got to take into inflation and everything like that. Obviously, that's not a lot of money now, but it might have been a lot of money back then. They could only make films with that one studio. Um, And that studio controlled every single aspect of their life. And like I said, they did everything for these people. So it's kind of like, imagine if an actor, say like a Ryan Reynolds, he could only for the rest of his career or for the tenure of his contract, he could only make like films with one studio. And he could never negotiate his deals based on if he was in a film that took off, like if he was in a, you know. Phil McKen to Wizard of Oz or something like that, he still made the same amount because he was seen as a salaried employee. He couldn't really negotiate on the back end. And oftentimes, sometimes the studio system would have studios trading stars for other stars, um, which was the case with Gene Kelly, who kind of got switched around a lot, I think between like MGM and I can't remember what the other studio was, was it might've been Fox. Um, depending on you know what films are coming out, Studios will say, hey, I have XYZ star. I want XYZ star. And so they'll switch. It's like bartering uh, with people and their, their personas and their images. It's very bad. <laughs> but so like the, the star system, like I said, when I was saying that they, they did everything for them, that also extended into kind of their personal life as well. Um, if anything came out about them or like the press, was getting ready to run a story on like a major film star, the studio's PR team kind of like swooped in and was like, <laughs> no, you're not. And if stars kind of didn't negotiate with that, um, it would be bad for them and they would be blacklisted in a lot of ways. And that happened quite a bit with a ton of stars. Um, so you don't, you didn't have a ton of freedom with what you could do, who you could be with, all of that. Like they, they kind of, kept all of that on their wraps. Also, if a star was doing something that they weren't supposed to be doing, you know, like engaging in drugs and alcohol, committing adultery, anything that is not something that a a clean cut film star should be doing, film they the studio swept that under the rug as well. Um So for a lot of these stars, they kind of agreed to these terms. It was almost as if they were like children and they had to promise that they wouldn't do X, Y, Z things. And if they violated those terms, they were probably going to be like suspended without pay or in, in kind of greater cases, blacklisted. One kind of big instance of this is Ingrid Bergman, who in her personal life, she found herself pregnant with a man who was not her husband. And so obviously the studios were like, yeah, that doesn't really gel with our clean cut image uh, or not clean cut, but just this image that we've created for you. This is adultery. We can't we're not we're not rocking with that. And so she was blacklisted for a couple of years in the industry. Clearly, actors hated this system because they were incredibly restricted with what they could do, who they could see, et cetera, et cetera, who they could be in a lot of ways. And they wanted out. But the good thing about it is when actors were kind of starting to talk and converge together, this kind of coincided with audiences wanting a more genuine and kind of real side to their movie stars as well. This was around like the, the 50s or 60s. So you begin to see the star system break down because audiences wanted to know who really are these people who are acting in these movies that I see every week. And so the star system kind of went away and actors were free to work with studios as they pleased from the 60s onward. Now, one thing that I'd like you to keep in mind as we go through these different little pieces of this big chaotic machine is that uh, a lot of these things seem to have worked their way kind of back around in one way or another to how Hollywood is now. Unofficially, there's no real like star system in place an official star system but you know a lot of stars only work with certain studios a lot of stars keep a lot of things under wraps and have personas that the idea of having a persona or a stage name that is not your own was kind of a a thing that stayed around from the the star system era so as we go through you'll notice there are a lot of things that have kind of stuck around from this time So like I said, the star system was a bigger part of the studio system. So what is the studio system? (laughs) Well, the studio system was a system that was put in place that kind of made sure that Hollywood studios were always going to be in full control of how movies were made and how they were distributed. So that might not sound like much of anything because yeah, like duh, Hollywood should be in charge of the films that they make, but it's not quite so. Now in present day, the kind of execution and distribution of films is more of a team project. Studios will collaborate with outside production companies to create things, outside marketing companies to distribute films, movie theaters. Like there's a lot of, there's a big collaborative effort to get a film made and then shown to the masses. But in this time, the studio system was basically saying that everything, including production, distribution, and exhibition, was done in-house, which is a lot. That's a lot of people under one roof. It was basically kind of like vertical integration where, like, everything is done in one spot. So that includes the actors, the crew, the directors, the writers, like any production staff, like PR, all of that stuff, they were under contract of the studio. They weren't really seen as like independent contractors in that way. So within the studio system, there was the big five and the little three. So the big five were MGM, paramount warner brothers rko and fox and the little three if you if you can believe it are universal columbia and united artists which united artists is interesting because it was a studio that was created by actors it was basically they created it it was i think mary pickford charlie chaplin and a couple other people whose names i'm completely blanking on right now who came together in the kind of early stages of hollywood becoming a cemented kind of thing who said like, yeah, we're not getting treated all that well. So maybe we should work together as artists because we know what we want and kind of negotiate our deals that way. So that's United Artists. A little bit of a tidbit, a little fun fact for you there. So what kind of happened? What was the big thing that happened within the studio system? So other than most of everything happening in-house, Studio system also engaged in what is called block booking. So block booking in, you know, a couple words, it's basically when studios would have a little conglomerate of movies. So they'd have one actually good movie that a lot of theaters would obviously want to exhibit in their facilities. And then they would have a group of questionable quality movies. So because of that, block booking could allow for studios to make a lot of movies that were really bad and then focus on maybe like five movies that were actually really good. And so what that meant was that a lot of theaters would get these like big group of films, only one, of, one or two of which were actually good. And that was the only thing that they could distribute or exhibit for a very long time. And then not only that, The only way to get out of block booking, if you were a a theater owner, was to be owned by a studio, which is strange because studios now obviously don't own movie theaters because that is a pretty massive conflict of interest. But back in the day, studios owned movie theaters and those movie theaters were exempt from block booking, but they were exempt because the only thing they could show were the movies from that studio. So either way, you're kind of, it's like being between a rock and a hard place. You either are an independent theater owner, but you fall under block booking where you get sold this conglomerate of films where only one is really good and the other ones are probably... Not that great. And depending on how many films were actually in the block booking, there could be about like 20 or more. And in like some extreme cases, that could be enough films to predetermine your entire year's slate of films. So you couldn't show anything. Even if you, if you got a block booking package from a studio and you wanted to exhibit another studio's thing, it could be up to a year or maybe even longer before you could even begin to think about buying a block booking for a different studio. It was a mess. But by 1945, studios owned, either partially or like fully, 17% of theaters in America, which accounted for about 45% of film rental revenue, which is obviously not that great of a thing. It shouldn't be that studios own the places where they show the movies, because that obviously, like I said, it gives a conflict of interest. And audiences aren't able to see a wider breadth of things if all the theaters in their town are owned by one studio. And in a lot of cases, that would be the case in probably smaller towns. One, like say a, I don't know, Paramount could own six theaters. And because it's the 30s and 40s, and it's not like there's a theater on every block, every theater in a hundred mile radius of you could only be showing the same five movies. So you're not seeing a lot of things, right? So how did this all kind of come to a close? What happened? Well, it started in around 1948 with the verdict in the case of the United States versus Paramount Pictures. And it was basically a lawsuit that was introduced by the U.S. Supreme Court basically saying like, hey, Hollywood's doing some like kind of weird stuff uh, as far as like monopolies go. And we got to break that up. So the decision was from the verdict that studios have to stop block booking. They got to stop doing that. Uh, you, You cannot force small theaters into buying one good movie and like 10 bad ones. And that's the only thing that they can show. And they also forced the studios to sell their theater chains as well. So it was basically just a big moment of breaking up all of these like massive monopolies that were basically owned by the big five. And like I said earlier, life does find a way of working its way back around and one could say that we are in a studio system light right now because there are a lot of studios that have some pretty big monopolies on the industry so within all that with the star system being what it was with the studio system being what it was what was the quality of these movies at this point obviously we had some classics like you know your wizard of Oz and whatnot but if you've seen a movie from around this time you might notice that they're very, very sanitized. So how they treated stars in the star system extended all the way into the movies. And the reason for this is Hays Code. So what is Hays Code? The Hays Code is more formally known as the Motion Picture Production Code, which refers to a self-imposed set of rules that Hollywood films had to abide by in an effort to uphold kind of a moral high ground or what studios thought of as correct thinking. So in the time period before classic Hollywood, Golden Age of Hollywood, etc., Hollywood was kind of seen as a bit of a lawless space, if you will. Um, it, people were kind of making films about whatever. There were a lot of very like explicit films that were being made. And unfortunately, they've kind of been lost to time and also physically just lost because film it doesn't really survive for all that long. And also there were a couple of like major fires uh, from studios where a lot of these like pre-code, which is, this is what is known as like pre-code films have been lost completely. So around that time, it was just kind of a, a bit of a lawless space. So Hollywood was like, okay, we could probably like be on the verge of being censored by the government. So maybe we should reel it in a little bit. Yeah, let's reel it in. So they brought in Will H. Hayes, who was a clergyman who was brought in to kind of clean up the scandal-stricken Hollywood that was kind of on the brink of government censorship themselves. So what were some things that you couldn't do in, in the code? This included having films that had any type of like sympathy for criminals. Films basically had to kind of end with like a happy ending. Ambiguous endings weren't really common or accepted around this time. Obviously, relationships between races, not allowed. That wouldn't get cleared up for a very long time. Excessive or lustful kissing, not allowed. I mean, a lot of ways they couldn't even show like married couples uh, in the same bed together. Not gonna happen, obviously, because of who wrote the code. Ridicule of religion, not allowed. And there's a lot more. There was more that you couldn't do than you could do. So you may be thinking, well, like, there were a lot of movies being made around this time. So, how were they able to, like, know if a movie had all of these things? Well, they had a solution, and that was the Production Code Administration, or the PCA. And the PCA basically screened every single film. And in order for a film to be shown in a theater, it had to receive a PCA seal of approval. So you, there was a team that was basically watching all of these films that had to give the okay or the not okay to, to these films to be exhibited. And if you're wondering, okay, what about free speech? Why are they like policing what can be put in a movie or what cannot be put in a movie? Movies, fun fact, weren't protected under free speech around this time due to a 1915 court case that saw movies as businesses and not in art form. So therefore, no free speech. It did not fall under free speech, shockingly. Obviously, that decision would be reversed. I think was around the 50s or 60s. Now, to be fair, not, I don't want to be, you know, a complete Debbie Downer. The Code wasn't always bad. Some movies actually kind of benefited from it. 1942's Casablanca is a pretty big example of it. So the, because the code had rules against adultery, they had to rework the iconic scene um, w- between, oh my gosh, I am blanking on that. <laughs> the iconic like airplane scene for the for the sake of brevity here, the iconic airplane scene, uh, because they couldn't show anything, you know, explicit, not that they would. Um, but it causes the writers and, and studios to think outside the box in a lot of ways. So the code kind of began to diminish in power around the 50s and 60s. For lack of a better term, people just stopped caring about it, honestly, because it was self-imposed from Hollywood. Uh, Hollywood was just like, oh, yeah, we don't care anymore. There were kind of a lot of reasons for this. But one of the big ones was that films from overseas were beginning to enter the market now because there was no like block booking. So studios and theaters could actually exhibit them especially films from the Italian neorealism period and the French New Wave. So a lot of Jean-Luc Godard, Breathless, all that stuff. So they weren't bound by the Hays Code. Those films weren't bound by the Hays Code. Um, and Hollywood saw that the US government did not care about those films at all and their explicit nature. And so that kind of gave Hollywood the green light to be like, oh, okay, so we, sh- we shouldn't care either. And by the late 60s, the code was basically gone. But not too long after it, we got the rating system that is associated with films today. So, my closing thoughts on all the things old Hollywood can be summed up simply as old Hollywood churned out some hits, but boy, was it a nightmare. It was, in a word, a mess. Well, if you've made it to the end of this episode, I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I hope that you enjoyed this messy romp into the history, a very brief history of old Hollywood. There are a lot of other things that happened around that time. And I'd love to do a deeper dive one day because it it's a lot. It really is a lot. If you want to know where to find me uh, on the internet, you can find me at the afternoon special on TikTok or on instagram at the afternoon special or over on twitter at hi i'm bobby h-i-i-m-b-o-b-b-i you can keep up with this podcast specifically over on instagram at hi i'm bobby podcast and that's all one word and if i'm throwing a lot of information at you it's been a long episode and you're thinking bobby i'm not gonna remember that i put it in the description box just for you so you can just click a link and go to wherever it is that you need to go At the end of each week's episode, I'd love to hear from you. In the description of each and every episode, you will have the option to send me a one-minute audio message. It could be a hot take. It could be a response to what I said. It could be a question. It's really up to you. Of course, all I ask is that you keep it respectful. And if audio messages really aren't your thing, hey, I get it. You can always shoot me a DM over on Instagram or on Twitter. And just let me know your thoughts there. I really hope you enjoyed this week's chat and that you'll join me again next week for another pop culture deep dive. Later days, friends. I'm Carlos King, one of the most sought-after executive producers in reality television. I am thrilled to announce Reality with the King, where we'll discuss all things reality TV. I have interviewed everyone from Mimi Leaks, Teresa Judai and Kenya Moore. Each episode, we will rehash shocking portrayals, honey. Yes! Hilarious shade and all the drama. Reality with the King podcast is available wherever you get your podcast. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what was it. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.